If there's a dominant theme in politics today about our economy, it's that it's rigged. The narrative around inequality seems to fall into two basic camps. One side thinks the rich are getting richer because they're delivering better stuff to people. The other side thinks it's the case of the free market left unrestrained and aided by an absence of government intervention. But what if the rich are getting richer not because of any specific increase in productivity, but because of government intervention itself? In their recent book, The Captured Economy, Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis argue that yes, the economy is rigged in a way that is leading to slower economic growth and higher inequality. But the reasons they focus on will probably surprise you. In their eyes, the way the economy is captured stems from policies that, on their face, aim to help and protect those lower in the income ladder. Who could argue against laws increasing home ownership, supporting the creative works of starving artists, protecting consumers from unreliable doctors, or preserving historical neighborhoods? And the policies aren't enacted because of any sinister quid pro quo from billionaires to policymakers in smoky back rooms. They come about from a combination of misdirected efforts, mostly good intentions, and just being under the radar to the everyday citizen. In fact, Lindsay and Tellis argue the power of special interests and lobbyists comes mostly not from spending on campaigns, but by bridging the gap of informational shortages in the policy process. On today's episode, we examine how the financial sector, intellectual property laws, occupational licensing, and land use regulations are stifling economic growth and leading to higher inequality. You're listening to Upset Patterns. Captured economy, Brink, Lindsay, and Stephen Tellis argue that the last few decades, characterized by slow growth and an increase in inequality, have coincided with a huge increase in what they call rent seeking. Well, rent seeking is can be defined as uh, pursuing profits through the political process. So, in other words, uh, making money not by serving customers better or creating value for people, but by rigging the rules in your favor. Uh, so. Uh, it's pretty obvious, I think, when you state it that way, uh, how such policies are bad for growth. They uh, limit competition, they stymie, comp- stymie competition, they distort market forces, um, they uh, make it harder for uh, innovators with good ideas to prevail in the marketplace because other people are, have a leg up because of government policies. The first area Lindsay and Tellis focus on is the financial sector. As recently as 2004, the top 25 hedge fund managers earned more than all S&P 500 CEOs combined. If you want to examine how the economy has gotten to a point of high inequality, it makes sense to look at finance. It's an easy scapegoat for people of all political stripes, but Lindsay and Tellis are quick to point out that it's not whether finance is too regulated or not regulated enough, but rather that it is misregulated. So what are the signs that the financial sector could be distorted? Well, the first thing you see is that the financial sector as a share of the overall economy has ballooned uh, in recent decades, almost doubling as a share of GDP. Uh, And we believe that a good deal of this expansion uh, reflects hidden subsidies that the financial sector receives uh, through the regulatory code. Uh, First, massive regulatory subsidies for mortgage finance, and in particular, uh, securitized mortgage finance with lots of opportunities for issuing and trading those mortgage-backed securities, which generate profits and rents for the financial industry, uh, while ultimately leading us to a financial cataclysm 10 years ago. Right. The other thing we talk about a little bit in the book is the uh, right now we subsidize uh, housing purchases through the mortgage interest deduction. Um, that, of course, is a um, is a direct subsidy for leverage for borrowing because um, you can deduct the interest, uh, but it spreads it out over the entire term of the loan. 
Um, you could equally use the same amount of money to subsidize down payments. That is, that would be subsidizing capital, which would also create a lot more of a buffer in the market because it would be directly increasing uh, housing equity. It would also be much less upward redistributing um, because it would uh, actually solve the problem that people who are on the outside of the market have, which is they can't get a um, get a down payment. So. Um, you know, that would be would, bo would both be serving our distributive purposes better and it would make the market more stable by increasing the percentage of equity that um, that homeowners have. Nothing says American dream more than homeownership. So for the last few decades, we saw a huge increase in policies that purported to assist homeownership. They were celebrated even when it looked unsustainable. The results? Well, in the early 80s, before the financial sector really started to get into mortgage-backed securities, the home ownership rate in the U.S. had held steady at around 65% for decades. It kept growing, and in the early 2000s, it reached a peak of 70%. But in 2016, after the bubble burst and the music stopped, home ownership is down to 63%, its lowest level in 50 years. And this is, this is an illustration of how policymaking gets into trouble when we try to do the welfare state on the cheap. Uh, we have a goal here to, to help lower-income homeowners buy their first home, um, we could accomplish that transparently on budget uh, with uh, down payment assistance to low income uh, households. Um, we don't do it that way because that's on budget and uh, everybody knows about it and people know they have to pay taxes for it. And so uh, instead we do it all by subterfuge, by uh, creating subsidies for first a savings and loan industry and then for a mortgage securitization industry. Uh, so simultaneously encouraging households to get deeper and deeper in debt, uh, which isn't a good thing, and creating subsidies for industries to profit off that indebtedness uh, uh, and run uh, excessive risks at the same time. So uh, uh, all of that hides the costs for a long time uh, and makes the, the, uh, <clears throat> makes the costs you know, obscure. Uh, but ultimately, uh, they're much heavier than uh, and much uh, more distorting and have much more negative effects than the simple, clean, uh, transparent, on-budget version of assistance through fiscal transfers rather than the uh, subterfuge of regulatory subsidy. Uh, also, uh, more generally, um, maintenance of and subsidies for uh, extreme reliance on very high debt levels, which are typical in the financial industry and completely atypical anywhere else, uh, and which expose financial institutions to the threat of cataclysm, because any slight reduction in their asset values means they're insolvent. Uh, we've kept that whole uh, house of cards going for decades uh, with both an explicit fiscal safety net and also an implicit promise to bail out too big to fail institutions. Uh, this complex of subsidies uh, makes for a financial sector uh, much bigger uh, than we need and much more crisis prone than we ought to have. Right. And I would also add the, um, the large subsidies we have for active management of 401ks and IRAs um, creates a much larger asset management industry than would exist under uh, under a different uh, policy regime. Um, so that also had the effect of, um, of inflating the size of the financial sector. As I, as I mentioned, the financing structure for financial institutions is really aberrant compared to every other industry. Um, uh, in other industries, having low debt levels is considered a sign of health. Uh, uh, Apple went years and years and years with zero debt whatsoever. Uh, in most uh, industries, having any debt levels in excess of 
uh, of 40 or 50 percent is considered quite perilous. There's alarm bells going off. You're doing something wrong. Uh, whereas in the financial industry, debt levels of 90 percent, 95 percent, 99 percent of assets are typical. Uh, and there is no way that state of affairs would be sustainable for decades as it has been without regular government propping up. Uh, so uh, requiring financial institutions to uh, depend much more on equity uh, than on debt for their financing. Uh, so the, we call this in financial regulation capital requirements, uh, requiring that they have uh, <clears throat> instead of, uh, you know, equity equal to two or five percent of uh, assets, having it 20, 30 percent of assets uh, would uh, render financial institutions much more robust in the face of asset value fluctuations, much less likely uh, to go insolvent, therefore much less likely to make creditors panicky and start runs. Uh, so we could have a much more stable uh, uh, financial is uh, sector if we just stopped subsidizing the extreme reliance on debt. Because you can deduct the interest you pay on debt from your taxes, funding and finance favors it over equity. The dot-com bubble that collapsed in the early 2000s actually had a greater direct loss of wealth than the nationwide drop in home prices during the financial crisis. The reason the bubble bursting caused only a minor recession instead of a financial crisis was because of that industry's reliance on equity instead of debt. The fragile financial sector slows down economic growth because of the harm caused during recoveries, but its harm extends to perpetuating inequality as well. Well, in, as far as the financial sector is concerned, uh, by uh, engaging in excessive risk-taking, uh, that means that profits are inflated during the good years. Uh, you're getting high returns based on uh, doing extremely risky things. Uh, and those uh, excessively high returns uh, are uh, recouped by private actors. Uh, but then when uh, everything hits the fan uh, uh, and it's time uh, to... Uh, uh, to settle accounts after all these investments have gone bad, uh, the government steps in and bails out all the creditors. So uh, you have a system where uh, <clears throat> uh, profits are exaggerated during the good years and losses are socialized during the bad years, which funnels uh, uh, great gobs of money into financial uh, executives and professionals and managers. So back about 30 years ago, financial executives and, and managers and professionals made basically the same as, as comparably uh, skilled professionals in other industries. Now they make a 50% premium. Executives make a 250% premium. Uh, so uh, they're living very high on, uh, off the hog uh, at taxpayer uh, expense. This isn't meant to imply that the financial sector is entirely useless. The intermediation, liquidity, and risk-smoothing finance does is an essential part of a modern economy. In fact, studies overwhelmingly show that an economy can only grow with the corresponding increase in credit. But that increase only comes when it's to the business sector, not an increase in household debt. In the last few decades, the increase in debt we've seen has been almost entirely to households. The next area Lindsay and Telus focus on is intellectual property. The thinking behind intellectual property protection is this. Things like ideas, mp3 files, pharmaceutical drugs, or books can be replicated at very low cost. But the upfront hard work through research or experimentation can be very expensive. If individuals or companies have their innovations easily replicated, they won't be as willing to invest in the upfront cost to develop them. IP laws aim to spur innovation because the monopoly they create will deliver high profits for their efforts. The downside, of course, is that a monopoly will be worse for consumers because of higher prices and lower quantities supplied to the market. But is the current environment too strict? Yeah, there's been an explosion in, in the scope and rigor of intellectual property protection uh, over the past 30 years. 
Uh, copyright terms have expanded dramatically. Copyright now ex extends to unpublished as well as published goods. Every time you forward a friend's email, uh, you're violating copyright. Um, meanwhile, patents uh, have exploded as the, as the scope of patentable goods and the standards for patentability uh, have, have changed and shifted. Uh, so that now we issue about five times as many patents annually as we did 30 years ago. And producers and consumers aren't the only parties in this mix. Producers that want to build off existing intellectual property or create similar products are affected by intellectual property law as well. For innovators, downstream innovators who have to use uh, other people's intellectual property as components of their own innovation. So these days, uh, lots and lots of industries uh, innovate by combining great uh, uh, diverse streams of intellectual property, many different components in a product. Uh, and so having access to everybody else's intellectual property, if it's, uh, uh, if it's uh, rendered inaccessible uh, by these excessive monopolies, makes life tougher for downstream innovators. And also, uh, so first, it, it increases their expense. Uh, secondly, it uh, greatly increases their uncertainty uh, because uh, the the possibility of innovations running afoul of, of somebody's copyright or somebody's patents are uh, are high because there's too many patents and too many copyrights. And so uh, instead of uh, uh, intellectual property law serving as a kind of stimulus for innovation, it has become a, a minefield for innovators uh, who have to uh, endure threats of, uh, of litigation that even if completely unmeritorious are still going to cost money to get out of. Uh, and so uh, we've really uh, sort of perversely turned intellectual property into accomplishing the precise opposite of what it's supposed to do. This is where patent trolls come into play. Patent trolls are organizations that hold the rights to patents not to produce anything, but to benefit entirely off of lawsuits. In fact, most patent lawsuits now are filed by companies that don't even make products. This costs money for those defending themselves and has the knock-on effect of discouraging innovation that treads in the uncertain waters of intellectual property courts. In 2011 alone, Suits defending patent trolls came to $29 billion, equivalent to more than 10% of the research and development expenditures by U.S. businesses. At this point, there's evidence suggesting that when excluding pharmaceutical and chemical industries, the cost of patent litigation exceeds the entire value of patent holdings. This means, as Lindsay and Tellus note, outside the chemical and pharmaceutical industries, American public companies would be better off if the patent system didn't exist. But how sure can we be that innovation would still occur without these strict IP laws? Um, well, uh, we had lots of artistic creation uh, and, and technological innovation uh, when uh, uh, copyright and patent regimes were, uh, uh, <clears throat> were different from how they are today. Um, furthermore, uh, the, the extension of, uh, of copyright terms as an incentive for production is just kind of silly. Uh, the, uh, so for the overwhelming majority of artistic works that are created, don't make any money. Um, and people produce them not because they, uh, think they're going to make money, uh, but because they love to create and they love to be artistic. He has a point. I make this podcast not because it's a cash cow yet. And I'm recording an album all about Adam Smith with no expectation of getting a song on a BMW commercial. And how much does IP really benefit all of us independent podcasters and econ rockers anyway? Uh, every once in a while, some of these hit the jackpot and make lots of money, find an audience. Uh, and, uh, and then those, uh, because of copyright protection, generate huge income streams for the middlemen distributors and uh, to some extent for the artists through royalties. Um, 
But these are lightning strikes. And so the idea that expanding the copyright protection from life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years uh, is going to sharpen your incentives of creation when the odds that you're ever going to produce anything that generates copyright uh, royalties at all are infinitesimal just doesn't make any sense. So um, uh, meanwhile, we have seen uh, because of uh, of file sharing um, via the Internet, we've seen lots of of unauthorized copying, great, you know, enormous volumes of unauthorized copying these days, and, and copyright interests are screaming bloody murder that they are victims of incessant theft via file sharing. Uh, and yet during this time, we've seen the number of books published go up, the number of movies produced go up, the number of records produced go up. Uh, so even in this time of supposedly copyright lawlessness, according to copyright interests, uh, we're seeing an explosion of artistic creation. Right. And another thing to think about is even if you do think that the um, the amount of innovation we have is less than we may think is socially desirable, um, copyright is not necessarily uh, or a patent or not necessarily the right way to do it. You can think of lots of other ways to subsidize um, uh, creation. Um, in some sense, universities uh, are already a major way to subsidize, for example, social science. It's true. Intellectual property is only one way to spur innovation. We can give out prizes to a firm that manages to develop a pill that cures a disease. Or we can directly fund the research and development of the arts and sciences. These cost money, but once produced, the creations are in the public domain and much cheaper for the consumer. Uh, I mean, we're not uh, arguing for the uh, abolition of copyright and patent law, uh, but both have, uh, have taken off dramatically in recent decades and with no... Uh, no plausible justification. So they just need to be uh, uh, brought back uh, into uh, conformity with, with their longtime uh, role as a, as a modest stimulus, uh, uh, but not, uh, not the sort of legal uh, out-of-control monsters they've become. Aren't there some industries where this trade-off could still be worth it? Creating this podcast requires some time, but the monetary investment is essentially a couple microphones, a laptop, and an internet connection. Other verticals have much higher upfront costs to deal with. Yeah, I think there are certainly uh, uh, industries where the case is stronger than in others, and the case is uh, probably strongest uh, for uh, pharmaceuticals and for chemicals, uh, in part uh, because the whole idea of an intellectual property regime, an emphasis on property, uh, assumes the possibility of drawing legible boundary lines around somebody's property. Uh, that's an easy task with pharmaceuticals and chemicals uh, because the property boundaries are uh, delineated by chemical formulas. Everybody knows what's being patented. Uh, those, uh, that's all indexable and searchable. So uh, innovators in these industries can know uh, what's already been covered. Uh, <clears throat> no analog is remotely possible for software patents where all software patents are described by abstract language. There's no way to know unless it's litigated exactly what the boundaries of it are. There's uh, such a profusion of these issued that no one has the time to uh, to read through all the ones that possibly uh, apply to your area before you go ahead with marketing a product. Uh, so the possibility of a property regime just doesn't exist uh, for in many areas uh, because of the inability to draw coherent boundaries. But for pharmaceuticals and chemi chemicals, the case is stronger. Even there, though, there's possibilities for abuse. There's possibilities of having patent law lined up in a way that it incentivizes sort of minor cosmetic changes in drugs to extend patent life rather than real uh, innovation that, that helps people.
So uh, even there, uh, I think uh, the status quo is not beyond criticism, uh, but it's on much firmer ground than, uh, than patents for business methods or software. So if intellectual property enforcement is too strong, growth is stifled by leading to less innovation and wasted money on litigation. But how does it contribute to growing inequality? Yeah, so it, it, uh, the ability to have protected income streams from commercial hits uh, whether they are, uh, you know, uh, best-selling records or popular drugs, um, automatically creates great economies in scale in in finding these income streams and maintaining them. Uh, so once you shift to this kind of regime, there are huge economies of scale, and therefore there are there are strong incentives for for industry concentration. Uh, and so not only do you have uh, uh, the market power coming from the temporary copyright monopolies, but you have the market power simply coming from size. Uh, so, um, uh, and uh, so what we see are, uh, you know, <clears throat> mega fortunes generated uh, for some. Uh, so certainly in, in Silicon Valley, IP has, uh, has been the basis for some of the biggest fortunes in, in the world. Uh, it also has resulted in uh, abnormally high profits for the pharmaceutical industry in excess of 20% uh, year after year after year, which is just uh, not normal. Uh, those uh, profits then uh, pay people in the uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, the highly trained uh, uh, professionals and executives, much better than they get in other industries and therefore redistributes upwards. The rent sinking found in the financial sector and intellectual property laws happens mostly in the national policy landscape. But the other two areas analyzed in the captured economy are more local and under the radar of the typical citizen. When we return, we'll look at how occupational licensure and land use laws slow down growth and increase inequality. This episode of Upset Patterns is brought to you by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra income, but actually getting paid can take months. That's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully deposits directly into your bank account, with funds usually available the same day. They work with all the major platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and others. They've helped thousands of hosts expand their business or cover unexpected expenses. Visit payfullynow.com for your first request absolutely free with code UPSETPATTERNS. That's payfullynow.com, promo code UPSETPATTERNS. Whether or not you need a license to work in a certain profession differs between states. And within each profession, those requirements can differ significantly. To be a manicurist, for example, you need 163 days of education and training in Alabama, but only 9 days in Iowa and 3 days in Alaska. Licensure has been around for a while, but Lindsay and Tellis argue that it's been getting much more restrictive and arbitrary. Well, there's been a, the, the sheer growth of occupational licensing over the past few decades is, is quite remarkable. In 1970, uh, about one in 10 Americans worked in a job that required government permission to do. Now it's about one in three. Uh, a, a lot of this expansion has been uh, uh, because, of the, uh, because of the extension of licensing to new occupations. Uh, something over 1,100 occupations are licensed in one state or another, uh, but it varies widely from state to state. The thinking, of course, behind occupational licensure is that it increases the quality of services in a given sector. By requiring training or a certain level of competency, consumers should benefit from a higher standard of service. At least, that's the theory. Yeah, so there's so many occupations that have been licensed uh, that uh, there just isn't good research on most of them. Uh, what research exists uh, struggles to find any consumer benefit from licensing, even in fields like uh, dentistry and 
uh, and uh, teaching. Um, so uh, meanwhile, there are other reasons to, uh, to be very suspicious that there is a real consumer protection uh, uh, benefit here. Uh, first, just the wild variation in what gets licensed from state to state. If there were particular industries where there were real problems that, uh, that crop up again and again, you would expect to see the same occupations licensed everywhere, but it's just all over the map. So it looks a lot more like uh, political strength of, of different industries in different states rather than any common economic rationale. Uh, likewise, if you look at the actual criteria, uh, a cosmetologist, uh, uh, the average number of training days to get a cosmetology license is 360 days. The average number of days of training uh, to, to be an uh, EMT te uh, technician where you're dealing with life and death is 30 days. Uh, so if the goal here is to protect consumers and protect their health and safety, uh, there's just no evidence uh, that, that that goal is, uh, is, is uh is being advanced by occupational licensing. After Hurricanes Francis and Katrina, for example, Florida relaxed licensing restrictions on roofing services and evidence suggested no decrease in quality. This even being an environment where, after natural disasters, you'd think consumers would be more likely to fall prey to inadequate service. In another example, researchers compared 25 random floral arrangements from Louisiana with 25 from Texas. Louisiana requires licensure, but Texas does not. The verdict? The judges gave identical scores. But how does this contribute to inequality? At the bottom end, uh, occupational licensing is a barrier to opportunity, a barrier to starting new businesses, and particularly one that's stacked against uh, the less advantaged, the less credentialed, uh, and immigrants, uh, because all of these testing requirements uh, uh, you know, tend to, uh, to make it easier for people with advantages to, go th to jump through all those hoops. Licensing can also explicitly disqualify applicants who have any sort of criminal record even when the crime is unrelated to their desired profession and after they have suffered punishment. In a country with a large racial incarceration gap, licensing can serve to perpetuate the connection between race and income opportunities. At the top end, the, uh, the income uh, inflation uh, generated by licensing for doctors, dentists, and lawyers uh, is considerable, uh, adding uh, significantly to our medical costs and uh, and uh, adding significantly to the money that goes to the top 1%. Doctors alone, uh, doctors and lawyers together are about, uh, make up about 25% uh, of the top 1%, uh, and they're making a lot more money than they should uh, because of artificial restrictions on, uh, uh, on supply of doctors and lawyers. Now, I have immaculate cuticle health, but let's say that I wandered through New York City looking for a manicure. How do I know if I'm going to get decent service by going into a random shop? The uncertainty could even discourage me entirely from getting a manicure. This is what's called the lemon problem in economics. It comes from an example looking at uncertainties in the used car market. If I go to a car lot and I'm not sure whether I'll get a functioning car or a lemon, I might avoid purchasing one altogether. This means there are solid working cars out there that aren't being fully utilized. Is it possible that occupational licensure solves the lemon problem in many of these services? So occupational licensing does some good. Uh, just as you mentioned, uh, but all of the good it does could be done by certification, uh, whether by government bodies or by private uh, certifiers like underwriters laboratories. So there's lots of third party certification of quality that helps us, uh, you know, guide us in, in making complex consumer decisions. And uh, the same uh, kinds of regimes can be done to uh, to. Uh, uh, to be signs of quality, sort of, you know, good housekeeping seals, 
um, that uh, that give consumers uh, confidence they're going to good providers. Uh, we already have this most of in medical licensing. Uh, most people, most doctors are specialists, not general practitioners. Uh, they're all board certified. Uh, uh, that's an important indicator of quality. But all those uh, certification boards or private boards, all of that is voluntary. It's not mandated. Uh, so we have lots of voluntary certification and quality quality signaling already. Uh, we could have more. Uh, but we don't need mandatory licensing to accomplish that. This is a really important point that gets overlooked. When doctors get their legal license to practice, it's because they pass requirements that certify them to do a little bit of everything. A dermatologist is legally allowed to do brain surgery and heart transplants. What keeps specialists operating only within their specialty are certification boards that operate entirely independent of the government. Right. And the other thing is, if you're trying to um, ensure quality of practice, you can try and do it on the front end um, by reducing the number of people who come into the market. That's what licensing is designed to do. Or you can do it on the back end by allowing people to um, to sue if they get bad um, uh, bad service. Um, so one of the arguments we actually, you know, I think, reasonably strongly uh, say in the book that uh, our malpractice regime is probably much better than most people on the right uh, think it is. Um, and it's a very, you know, in that having strong malpractice and weak licensing is actually an entirely coherent and probably more optimal regime than having one where we have strong licensing and increasingly people are trying to cripple malpractice insurance. What this means is that malpractice insurance manages to screen doctors fairly accurately based on their competency. Whereas a doctor 30 years into his or her career may be out of fashion with the latest treatment, the legal license won't reflect that. Malpractice insurance takes into account factors more commonly related to performance. So, is the ideal to eliminate licensure altogether? So, I, I, I think they should be eliminated uh, altogether for uh, as many occupations as, as, as possible and replaced with voluntary certification. Uh, but there's all kinds of steps short of that uh, that are moves in the right direction. Um, in general, the legislation for occupational licensing tends to be kind of threadbare. They just create these uh, these licensing boards, these professional boards uh, that come up with all the criteria, define the scope of practice, and and so forth. And and that's where the the real uh, restrictions on competition uh, get generated is by those uh, regulatory boards. And they're almost always composed overwhelmingly of professionals from that field, with no government or public interest representatives, or very few. Uh, so if we if we uh, and there's there's been moves to challenge these uh, these kind of captured regulatory boards under antitrust law. And they have uh, they've had some uh, there's been some promising cases, including a recent Supreme Court case. Uh, so a drive to reconstitute all of these regulatory boards to make sure they aren't simply a bunch of uh, people in the field, uh, you know, uh, operating a cartel, uh, but rather are composed of of third-party public interest people who are in consumer safety and health, uh, you would have a very different licensing regime from the one you have now. Limiting the supply of a service causes prices to go up for consumers. And again, the healthcare industry has some of the biggest effects. Through a weird quirk in history, residency slots, which are legally required in order to practice, are funded by Medicare. And the number of slots paid for has remained frozen since 1997. Adding to that, from 1980 to around 2005, the number of spots in accredited medical schools was kept at 16,000, though a recent expansion has brought the number up to 20,000. Now, these limits are from arbitrary administrative policy or budget decisions related to Medicare, not because it increases the quality of service. 
When the number of doctors becomes scarce, those who manage to become doctors get paid more, at the cost of higher prices to consumers. Another example of the upward redistribution of licensure. The last topic Lindsay and Tellus focus on in the captured economy is land use. Broadly speaking, these are laws that govern when, where, and what people are allowed to build. Just like the previous areas discussed, these laws aren't usually dastardly intentioned or from billionaires strong-arming politicians. We've had zoning in America for about 100 years. It's all over the place. It's been here for a long, long time. Uh, so it, it seems weird that it would be something that we now are talking about as a big problem. Uh, but, uh, but things have changed over recent decades so that just the steady uh, tightening of the clamps of zoning uh, uh, has... Uh, has brought us to the point where in the big coastal cities in particular, uh, zoning isn't just affecting where housing is located within a metro area, but is affecting how much housing is created, and in particular is making it impossible for housing supply to keep up with housing demand. Uh, and so uh, what we've seen, in uh, especially in big coastal cities, is a big gap opening up between construction costs and housing values. And that gap is basically the cost of getting permission to build. Uh, Ed Glazer, an economist at Harvard, calls this a regulatory tax. Uh, he says that that regulatory tax in Washington, D.C. is about 20 percent. So that means about 20 percent of the price of a new house or, or, or of your monthly rent uh, is due to uh, land use regulations. Um, in uh, L.A. and Oakland, it's 30 uh, percent. In San Francisco, San Jose and Manhattan, it's 50 percent. This presents a problem for income opportunity. Cities are hotbeds for innovation, and even with technology making it easier to communicate than ever, the premium of being surrounded by smart people working on similar projects continues to be significant. Good ideas are contagious, and high costs of housing are preventing many people from benefiting from this contagion. Uh, so uh, we've got uh, huge distortions in prices uh, in uh, our highest income, most productive cities, uh, which is... Uh, making far fewer people live there than otherwise would be the case. So, and in fact, people are moving away. Uh, the normal pattern of human migration is people move from poor areas to rich areas, move from uh, destitution to opportunity. Uh, but here in the United States for the past 30 years, uh, the net uh, patterns of migration have been away from high income, high productivity coastal cities and towards lower uh, income, lower productivity cities and, and, uh, and exurbs in the Sun Belt, and it's all being driven by housing costs. And this geographic inequality can be comparable to more familiar measurements of inequality. The average income of someone with just a high school degree in Boston is now 40% higher than a similarly educated person in Flint, Michigan. In the 100 years before 1980, incomes across U.S. states converged typically around 2% per year. Since then, half as quickly. One study suggests a third of the decline in wage inequality between 1940 and 1980 was due to cross-state convergence. When housing costs limit this mobility, they limit income convergence. Uh, as a result, our population is, is in the wrong place uh, and, uh, and could be producing much more output if, it, if more people were in the places where more things are happening. As a result, uh, economists have calculated that, 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 uh, that overall national output could be as much as 10% higher than it is today uh, if, if we had more rational land use policies. Land use control started taking off during an era of American suburbanization as a way to protect home values. If the surroundings of your home dramatically changed, your house value could plunge. So laws were put into place to stop radical transformations from happening without oversight from local residents. So there, there are real external costs to development. They are borne typically by next door neighbors. So no, uh, we're, we're not uh, contemplating anything like uh, laissez-faire. 
uh, but the the way in which land use decisions are made uh, is is so imbalanced uh, that that you get wrong results. Um, so first of all, if just a metropolitan area is deciding how to zone, uh, then many of the affected interests are people who live outside that metro area who would like to move there, and so they don't get a vote. Uh, so already the the uh, the deck is stacked in favor of the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard lobby, and and, uh, and against the people who have a political interest in more development. The contribution of land use restrictions to inequality is pretty remarkable. In 2014, Thomas Piketty released an English version of his book, Capital in the 21st Century, that suggested capitalism had an inevitable tendency to perpetuate inequality because the returns on capital exceeded economic growth in the long run. Matt Roganley, now at Northwestern University, dissected the categories of capital found in Piketty's data to better understand where the rich were getting their investment returns. He found that a single component was responsible for the rise in wealth inequality, housing wealth. This means that laws like zoning regulations that prop up home values for people who already own homes or can afford them, no matter what you think of their benefit to city planning, contribute massively to the overall wealth inequality we're seeing today. The problem is not just in thinking of the right legislation. The point here is that rent-seeking is so embedded in the process and these policies are remarkably stubborn. A lot of that stubbornness is baked into how the incentives are set up in our legislative landscape. Right. One, I mean, the first reason, and this is sort of classic what uh, people in economics call public choice analysis, is that uh, the people who benefit from uh, rent-seeking, the uh, concentrated interests, have a very strong incentive to organize. Um, so even though the costs that are being borne by broad populace, that, that like all the people who are um, having to pay higher costs for housing, are, are very large, even though the benefits that concentrated interests are getting are smaller, those concentrated interests have a much stronger incentive to organize. Um, Second, um, the interests that we're talking about are not don't just have concentrated interest, but they generally have substantial wealth. Um, so they can, uh, after having organized, they can invest substantial um, uh, money into political activity. Um, especially in our story, they can show up. Um, the political system tends to be highly biased toward uh, people who are attentive and not very um, biased toward those who are inattentive. Uh, also, the political system is highly sensitive to information about um, policy costs and benefits, and concentrated interests have a incentive to uh, invest in providing policymakers with information about the likely effects um, of policy. So those are some of the reasons that we talk about in the book for why uh, concentrated and especially uh, more advantaged interests generally tend to uh, to win through politics. This is the unexpected prescription from Lindsay and Tellus. They argue a significant amount of power from special interests and lobbyists is not because of massive campaign contributions. It's because they give legislators information. That information is only one side of the story. Legislators and their staff can be informed about only so many issues, and oftentimes their ideology or political party doesn't give an obvious direction about where they should stand. House committee staff plunged 40% between 1979 and 2005, which leaves lawmakers looking to outside groups to tell them what the effects of laws will be. The final thing is generally most of the areas we're talking about um, are institutionally highly biased against um, participation. Uh, so they're like we uh, Brink talked earlier about occupational licensing, 
those licensing boards generally operate in the shadows. Um, they rarely have very wide participation for fairly understandable uh, reasons. So the people who show up are the, uh, the licensed occupations. Um, and it's not very hard for those bodies to come and come to think of themselves as uh, more or less private extensions of the licensed enterprise itself rather than public bodies that are responsible to, um, to represent a larger public. So when you take both the, uh, the resources that, it, uh, that uh, wealthy rent seekers have, their incentives to organize, their ability to produce information, and the institutions that they operate in, those are all, all very strong um, uh, explanations for why you end up getting this accumulation of upward redistribution. The situation isn't totally helpless. Political participation in the U.S. is pretty low even for presidential elections. There's a decent chance that a lot of the policies in this episode came as a surprise to you, our dear and well-educated listeners. So how can we work to better rent-proof our politics? So, so the, yeah, so the, the, the fix then, uh, the path of progress uh, is to uh, address all of these sorts of sources of bias. We've been cutting congressional staff and cutting uh, government uh, statistical and analytical capabilities. That's precisely the wrong thing to be doing. We should be upgrading them so that they aren't completely dependent upon industry lobbyists for policy relevant information. And to the extent we can move policy making out of obscure venues where only insiders participate to ones where uh, there is uh, uh, there's more uh, broader participation, then we're likely to move in the direction of better policy as well. Institutions like the Congressional Budget Office are staffed with nonpartisan and highly trained policy experts that do research and legislation. Increasing the scope of organizations like the CBO at the federal and local level would serve to mitigate these informational shortages. At this point, no official government study has been commissioned to evaluate the efficacy of our intellectual property regime. But what about the presence of wealth in furthering the goals of special interests? Uh, to the extent possible, to, to counter uh, the, uh, the, the wealth advantages of, uh, of well-off rent-seekers with third-party subsidies uh, from philanthropy. Uh, we've seen... Uh, 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 Private, you know, <clears throat> charitable foundations play a huge role in changing the political map for environmental protection by uh, funding uh, many, many environmental organizations in the early going. Also, changing the political landscape for school reform uh, by uh, by funding uh, uh, all kinds of uh, <clears throat> pro charter school groups that went up against uh, what had been utterly dominant teachers unions. Uh, so we could envision uh, an anti-rent-seeking uh, push uh, by uh, private foundations as well. Put So uh, public-interested uh, wealth being uh, deployed against uh, self-seeking private-interested wealth. Uh, also, um, ch- trying to rebalance these information asymmetries, in particular by upgrading the government's ability to generate and process information. Regardless of your view on charter schools or environmental regulation, The education reform and environmental movements give good examples of how diffuse interests can rise to the level of special interests. So maybe there could be a hypothetical consumer advocacy group that will push back against occupational licensing. But are the fat cats at Wall Street ever going to have a competing voice? Right. So when finance is a complicated case, um, uh, I tend to think that the um, informational advantage is still quite substantial because even once policymakers have started to consider um, making changes, 
they're very highly risk averse. Um, that is, they want to know if they're going to make a change that it's not going to have a unpredictable consequence that's going to be traced back to them and cause uh, political pain uh, to be imposed on them. And the only way to make that connection is through information. So if a uh, policymakers are thinking about some new regulation of the uh, financial industry to, for example, increase their capital requirements, uh, the financial industry is going to have lots of, um, of lobbyists who are going to be able to produce information, uh, studies that are going to show all the dire consequences that are going to come as a result of that. Uh, and um, the implication, therefore, is that policymakers uh, seeing that and seeing all the, 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 the reasons they're being told is going to be a disaster unless they have some other source of information that tells them that the financial industry is overstating the risk is generally going to tend, therefore, to shy away from doing anything more dramatic. They're going to tend to work on the margins where they're not likely to cut very deeply into um, the real the real bone of the uh, the industry. So I think even finance, which people think of as the industry that has the most money, the most resources, the most raw power, uh, information is very important um, in, because a lot of the, the changes that, that we're talking about are highly technical, and most of the policymakers who are currently making them are not highly expert in the area. Um, and so, as Brink was talking about, if we upgraded the quality of um, congressional staff in particular, and also staff in agencies, that would probably increase their confidence in making larger and more dramatic changes than they have under the current uh, system of relatively low expertise. The topics discussed in the captured economy certainly aren't the only factors slowing economic growth and increasing inequality, but they do show how some of the strongest policy forces in our economy can be under the radar and, despite their often good intentions, end up having unforeseen consequences that largely benefit special interests. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernell and recorded at Radio Free Jerome Studios in New York, New York. My guests today were Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis, authors of the book The Captured Economy. Email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com, rate us on iTunes, and share the podcast with your friends. 